about two and a half, three weeks since I last recorded the podcast. And um, in that time, British summertime has already passed. We have had the the allocated seven to 10 days of decent weather before we go back to just having miserable gray clouds and rain. Um, But I'm in a very good mood today. I'm feeling very sunny myself because going back to 2012, 5th of November, 2012, I got married uh, to my beautiful wife. And shortly thereafter, as a result of some of the events of that wedding, I did actually take an interest in photography and it's led me onto the career path that I'm on now, which is uh, absolutely wonderful. And uh, I did what most people do when they first start a, a new interest, which is they head over to YouTube or whatever site of their interest. And they, they look at videos of other people that really know what they're doing and they learn sort of organically through other people's experiences. I did that. And one of the first people that I ever really took a, a very keen interest in Bambi Cantrell. And I'm absolutely honored to say that Bambi's going to be uh, gracing us with her wonderful presence now. Um, one of the great things about Bambi compared to a lot of the, especially I'm going to be honest, a lot of the men that were on YouTube at the time is uh, my wife was a big fan of Bambi as well, which made it a lot easier for me to have way too many videos playing while we were trying to enjoy our time together and a huge influence on my beginnings in photography. Uh, before we get to everything about you and there's there's so much that you've done and, and so much amazing work let's just start off with uh, what made you pick up a camera for the first time why did you take an interest in photography um i've known since i was a little kid that i wanted to be a photographer um my earliest memories when i was four years old was my family um going to visit friends and if my parents wanted to keep me out of trouble, all they had to do was sit me on the couch and let me look at photo albums in their in the family's home. I've always loved pictures, but specifically pictures of people. I love people. I'm not afraid of them. I really enjoy people very, very much. And I enjoy finding out what makes them tick, you know, who they are versus who they, they pretend to be sometimes. And so, um, um, so anyway, that lifelong love of photography or for pictures, when I got married, just like you, actually, um, I married my high school sweetheart and I hired the, this photographer because she had a good camera and uh, <laughs> I learned a very rude thing. And that was that cameras don't take pictures that people do. And uh, my wedding photographs are awful. And today I have very few of them. My husband and I just celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary, and it bugs me to death that we don't have any good, really good pictures of us um, on our wedding day. So um, because of that experience, it really made me decide that I wanted to be a wedding photographer. Um, I'd always known that I wanted to be a photographer. I got my first camera when I was 15. And uh, this was back in the olden days when you used film and such. I had a little box camera, and I'd be out in the yard posing my brother and such. But weddings photography specifically, um, I fell in love with after my own experience. And um, so I, um, I started working for a photographer in the area. And this is truly was the turning point in my, my life. Absolutely. So I'm on my way to go interview with this photographer. He had an upstairs studio. And... Um, I was very nervous to show my portfolio and all my stuff, right? As any young photographer would be. And so as I'm walking up the stairs, I'm seeing all of these beautiful pictures that he has on the wall and I'm getting more and more intimidated. So I get to the top of the stairs and I put my hand on the doorknob to go in. And then I took my hand off the doorknob, turned around and ran down and ran out of the building because I was so afraid he would turn me down. And 
that really was a pivotal moment because if I left, if I, you know, decided to get in my car and leave, I would lose an opportunity that I really wanted very badly. So I got to a stop sign and I had to wait for the traffic. And so it gave me a second to gather my thoughts. I literally just said, you fool, what are you doing? This is your chance. Get your butt up those stairs. You go talk to that man. Worst thing you can do is say no, right? So I did. I turned around. I ran back up those stairs. I walked in the door. I said, hi, I'm here to talk to you about photographing for you. I'm Bambi Cantrell, shook his hands and uh, he hired me on the spot, but how could he not? I told him I'd do it for free. And uh, (laughs) I did. I worked for him for a year without pay. But, you know, I'm one of those people that if I can see it done, I can do it, but I cannot learn anything from a book. I can't, for some reason, I have a difficult time translating the written word into something that's, you know, physical or or real. And so for me, you know, after waiting and watching my, my boss for a year, watching him photograph weddings, um, I, um, started working for him and, um, worked for him for about five years and then started my own company. But I will tell you, I did it very reluctantly. I really never wanted to own my own business. And, um, because, I, I really wanted to photograph. I didn't want to do the stupid stuff, you know, like the billing or the taxes right. and all the rest of that yeah, stuff. Yeah. But my boss wouldn't give me a $25 raise. Now, not $25 an hour raise, because in those days I was getting paid $225 to shoot an entire wedding from beginning to end for 10 hours or whatever. And um, I wanted him to pay me $250 a wedding. Now, what would I do? If it were me, I'd say, sure, I'll just raise my rates 25 bucks and then that'd be fine. But he wouldn't do that. He said, I don't think anybody should make $250 to shoot a wedding. (laughs) And um, so I very reluctantly started my own company. And then I just started taking classes very much like you. We have a lot in common. Um, I've taken classes for years and I still take classes. Um, I, I love photography and I like, I believe that it's, a very living and breathing entity. It's not something that you learn one thing and then that's it. You know, I I just feel that you have to be adaptable to changing circumstances and changing times and, you know, what becomes acceptable. And a perfect example of that is the double exposure of the, uh, of the eighties, um, a man, and also in the seventies, I got married in 1975 and I wanted that picture of the bride and groom in the wine glass in the worst way. And <laughs> yet now, well, it's kind of sort of come back a little bit in a kind of a weird way, but still, if you did that in the nineties, nobody would hire you because they'd say, you know, you know, you're, that's old school, old, you know, old style and nobody's going to want that. So I do believe that it's important to keep fresh and to keep your mind open to, um, to new techniques and to new concepts or just a different way of thinking. And not that you copy people, but you adapt what you're doing and add to what your repertoire is so that you're able to be a much better photographer. Well, it's something, I mean, one thing I will definitely agree with you is that there seems to be a lot of parallels between you and me. Um, I personally find that there's no better motivator than thinking about, especially my wife's expression when we were looking through how bad our wedding photos were. It's it's an enormous motivator. And 
I've photographed a few hundred weddings at this point. And every time I'm out photographing a wedding, anytime I'm hitting like a rough spot or I'm feeling tired, fatigued, I just, I, that's what pushes me through um, that section of the day. And it keeps me going. I mean, I love the job. There's no denying that I love the job. And I think that wedding photography in general is massively underappreciated by the photographic community, let alone a lot of people maybe involved with weddings that think that you're kind of there as a service that's to kind of be neglected. But it's a huge motivator. Um, you talked there about sort of styles evolving and how do you go about finding the inspiration to evolve your style? Are you looking sort of sideways at different wedding photographers at what they're doing or do, is it a matter of conversation? Where do you find that inspiration? Um, I actually, I find it more in things outside of the wedding arena. Um, I'm um, not as inspired. I am inspired, but not so much by other wedding photographers, but by other photographers in general or other types of photography. Um, to give you an example, um, I'm a hound for magazines. I love looking at the pictures in a magazine, um, brides magazines, regular just fashion magazines and such, because it really helps me to get a pulse and a finger on the pulse of where the photo community is going. Um, to give you an example, when um, uh, in the, the early 90s, I was, I've always collected magazines and I started noticing that in the brides magazines that all the dresses that were all beaded and lots of lace and just over the top head, you know, head pieces and such was going away. And you started hearing the words minimalism and you started hearing things like, you know, um, you know, oh, I, I don't stage my imagery. And, and if you looked in the bride's magazines, even the wedding photographs in a bride's magazine became very editorial, very lifestyle, not formal. They, they completely went away from that. And so I remember distinctly looking at that and going, oh my goodness, I'm seeing a major shift in what is of interest to today's brides. And before in the early 90s and the 80s, the, remember the the brides had all the big poofy shoulder pads right, and, right. and fashion in general was just a hot mess. It was just every color <laughs> explosion with every big dangly earring. And then by like 1992, you could not buy a bead on a dress. Every dress, those dresses were so minimal. They were so clean and so simple. And that was the word you heard. And then along with that, you we started hearing words like, I want a photojournalistic approach to my wedding. I don't want to be manipulated. I want, um, I want authentic photography. And then I went, oh my goodness, this is a huge shift. It's a huge shift in paradigm. And so I started adapting my style, not changing who I was, but adding to what I was doing and, and started holding back a bit and trying to make perfect pictures and make them like so excruciatingly perfect that people, um, um, that, that, um, it would take forever to get a single shot. People weren't going to stand for that anymore. They really wanted something that was, um, less formal to, to put it, you know, mildly. So 
that's what I did. And I am at that time, I started taking some courses from um, a, a guy that many people know today, Dennis Reggie, who is the father of modern day photojournalism. And um, he, in fact, the first time I ever took a class from him, it was hilarious because he's uh, on stage and he's, he's incredibly obnoxious and he's talking about, you know, you know, making the shot instead of taking the shot. And I was superly offended because I was very, very formal. My training was very formal and um, it was just, just ridiculous. So crazy. And so I, um, afterwards I was so offended that I went up to him and gave him a piece of my mind. However, you know, I like that confrontational style with somebody. He really rattled my cage and it made me realize um, that this was something that was missing and that maybe I should actually listen to what he said. And so I did. And I'm incredibly grateful to him today. He's one of my closest friends um, because he really, he taught me something so profound that um I um, have used it ever since. So I, I do keep abreast of, of where the industry is going because now that I'm a, I'm a more mature photographer, you know, if you don't progress, you, you start seeing that you become less relevant. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a businesswoman. I love photography and this is my art and my craft, but you know what? You're not going to go to hell if you take a formal posed picture, nor are you going to be, um, you know, have go to hell if you, if you uh, do all images that are unstructured. So, you know, it's beauty is in the eyes of the checkbook holder. Quite frankly, <laughs> that's what that I'm all about. I really believe that I can adapt my, style to embrace who the person is. You know, I, I do have a definite style. It does tend to be a bit more fashion-y, but I'm not so arrogant that I don't try to find out who my subject is and then adapt that according to who they are and the kinds of um, um, things that will make them really motivated. Well, I mean, you talked about kind of I mean, again, I'm I'm big on photo books, big on magazines and things like that. One thing, if I'm completely honest, that I do struggle with is just the kind of the dearth of information that's actually helpful compared to the amount that you, you receive on a daily basis. You know, our phones, I think personally, I'm finding more and more of a gripe with Instagram being just a slew of nonsense. And as much as I try and curate it away from stuff that I'm not interested in, it has obviously it's it's. Uh, it has its own mind in what it wants you seeing. I'm curious to know, given given you know your your incredible back catalogue of work, and 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 I'm incredibly jealous of your experiences. Um, social media's impact on actual photography. Obviously, I think I think we're not far off of finding out how bad social media is generally for people's self esteem and and mental aptitude for dealing with things. But what do you think social media has done to the world of photography? You know, I have a love-hate relationship with it. Um, I think that it has done a great deal in um, for companies in getting their brand out there. Um, you know, I think that it's 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 an important tool that we need to, to that we need to use for people to know that we're there. 
Um, but at the same time, I don't, um, um, I, I don't think it's the Holy Grail. And, you know, as I said, I have a, a real love hate relationship with it. I'm constantly going, oh, I don't want to do this. And I don't really, I don't enjoy it. But one thing I have learned that, that I have to do to, in social media is I try to keep it positive and just ignore the, ignore the, um, the negativity, because if it's not that, it's somebody, it's always going to be somebody who's going to make some kind of crack. And, you know, you just don't, you know, life is just too short to get your panties in a wad over, you know, somebody, you know, saying this or that, or, 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 you know, saying something negative about what you do. So, um, but I do think it is an important tool that we need to use. I just try to use it for business. Um, I'm very careful I don't post a lot of pictures on social media about my personal life. Um, I don't think that's something that is really important for people to know about or to, you know, I, I just think it's, I like to keep my life very private. Um, but I do what like showing pictures. I like, um, I like being able to give them a really quick little synopsis on, you know, what I did to capture this image. Um and um, I do, one of the things I like about social media is that it at least lets me know what kind of new tools are out there. And then if I make, if I choose to look into that tool, then at least I'm aware of it. Otherwise, you know, I may not, you know, I may not know about some things that, that are going to be important to my career, but I do believe with like you, that you got to really sift through a lot of garbage. Um, and so one of the things I've done is that if you can't get my attention in the first two seconds, I'm moving, I'm moving on and I'm not going to bother with it. So, um, I don't waste a lot of time on social media. Uh, I try to make it, um, I, I try to make my presence count if I can. And I, I'm not by any stretch, a guru of social media by, you know, anyone's terms. Well, and another thing that's really kind of jumped in the last few years, and I know I switched from shooting DSLR to mirrorless about two years ago. And now kind of almost have an allergic reaction to saying it, but now find myself being a complete mirrorless shooter. Um, I actually, especially coming from, uh, used to be a musician. I like to fight the equipment that I'm using a little bit. I like to have to find its character and, and, um, I want it to have, um, a bit of pushback against me when I'm working with something so that you kind of you build up a respect and a mutual understanding of how you can get the most out of it. Uh, one thing I'm very much struggling with, and I'm, I'm, I'm very much a reluctant Sony shooter, but it's just that the cameras can do so much and they really don't leave you with an awful lot of difficulties when it comes to photographing anymore. And, and I, I'm curious, do you think maybe cameras are making it a bit too easy in the sense that everybody can get a photo out of a camera and maybe people are less interested in the more human aspect of it away from just what the technical side of thing is? Well, that's a good question. Um, I do think that the cameras have made it very easy um, for people to take a good picture, but you know what? It, it's like, um, but I still think that there is a need for um, the art of photography. Like just because you know how to, you can press a button doesn't mean that you understand composition and the way that light falls across the subject. You know, so there, to me, there really is still the craft in photography. Um, with that said, one of the things that I have noticed is that in the mind of the, of the client, the, 
the threshold of what looks good to them has uh, is is quite low. They don't really see. Um, they don't really understand you know, uh, the mechanics of photography, as far as, you know, what happens when you do this or that, they just go, Hey, that's a nice picture. That looks good. So their threshold of, of what, what, what is appealing to them is, is kind of on the low side. However, one thing is constant impact is everything. If your images have impact, then people are willing to forgive you for lighting. That's not quite the best. Or they'll forgive you if, if an image is a bit overexposed or even underexposed. But impact, you can't fake impact. So I would say for, for anyone out there who's wanting to improve their craft as a photographer and really still be able to, to command the dollars and get the business, work on your imp, the, imp, the impact of your images. Don't just get a bread and butter picture. So in other words, don't just do formula photography like Picture of bride on the altar at the church, picture of groom turning his head to the left, whatever, uh, the static, normal, you know, pictures. We need to show images that have emotion. And to capture those images with real, raw emotion, then you might need to use um, uh, a mirrorless camera so you can be completely silent. You may want to use specific lenses that allow you to, um, that, that where you can blur everything out of the background and, and really focus in on your subject or camera angles, work on your camera angles so that you can say, well, I would stand, I would generally photograph from this particular angle to get this shot, but what can I do? That's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I've done. I mean, it's also a matter of intent. One thing that I've noticed when I'm kind of going on, something I do is I do just consume an enormous amount of photography. Generally, the podcast has, has grown that massively because I'm always looking for, for new people and new work and new inspiration and so on. And um, I think the last, what is it now, 15 months of just nonsense on this earth, I've also had plenty of time to, to waste looking into the abyss and so I consume an awful lot of photography. And one thing I've, I've really noticed, and it's a little bit self-analytical here, but I find that there's an awful lot of images. I mean, th- there's just a tremendous amount of photos that are out there now, but yep. so many of them are just completely without intent. They're just, they're either pretty or they're sort of, they're ticking boxes for social media's sake, or they're doing something because they saw someone else was doing something. And it doesn't feel like there's an awful lot of photography out there that has intent. And I, I think non-photographers, even though they're not trained in, in a lot of the technical aspects of photography, can definitely still pick up on the fact that something that's made without intent isn't going to have that impact. Mm-hmm. That's very true. And I just wonder, something that you see an awful lot, especially with someone like YouTube or any kind of learning facility that people use, is there's lots of how. There's lots of teaching you how, how to use this light, how to use this camera how to create this look, how to do this kind of editing, but there's not an awful lot of why. And as someone like yourself who does a lot of public speaking, do you think maybe photographers are asking the wrong questions and maybe not getting the most out of the growth that they could be getting? Well, you know, um, yes, to answer your question, I do believe that's the case. But I think also it seems that because photography has become like an art or, or it is an art, you know, let's face it, that sometimes it can be very self-serving. In other words, very selfish. It's about you and what you do as a photographer. And there's less interest or less 
um, um, focus on the other person. And if you look at it, that really, that really says a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I would say that anyone who really wants to push their craft, take the you out of the equation and start thinking about the they or the them and the individuals that you're photographing and your work will go up the ear. It'll skyrocket because that's the unique component. It really is. The person that you're photographing is what makes the picture unique. It's not your ability to pose them in this pose or, you know, um, use this particular background that's been used forever or this location, um, things like that. But it's the person. That's what makes the entire experience unique. And we have choices. We can either embrace that hum- that person, that human being that's right there and say, okay, well, what can I do to... What is it that makes you tick? How do I find out who you are and be able to create something unique in this environment that's been, you know, overused? And another thing that's been going on, I think in America, it's starting to, it's definitely bleeding into Europe quite a bit. Uh, I take regular trips to America back when it was legal to actually travel. Um, I would be there at least twice a year. Politically and in terms of media, the news over there, it's, it's, a, it's a very different place from where I grew up in terms of how, how England is. We're slowly getting there. And I think across Europe, we're slowly getting there as well. Um, one of the big focuses I've noticed in America is, is I guess, generally referred to as identity politics, um, which is sort of breaking people down to subcategories and then referring to them within those categories. Seems very counterintuitive to what it's trying to achieve, but that's not what the podcast is about. But on that sort of run, um, something that I've, I've heard as an interesting debate quite a bit is whether or not there are positives or negatives to being, say, a female photographer. And I would say within, especially with yourself, within weddings, do you feel like there's a, a positive or a negative side to being specifically a female photographer? Well, I do think that um, when I started in photography, there was a huge advantage in being a woman because I... Um, I played bride when I was five years old. I know how, what I was thinking of. I, I know how it felt to, to I, when I got married, to put my veil on and to, to put my wedding gown on and to walk down that aisle. And that's something that, that women dream about, many women dream about when they're little kids. And so it's part of our, it's part of who we are. Whereas um, at the time in, the, in those earlier days, I'd say in the 80s and you know, 90s or whatever, the male counterpart uh, photographers were more interested in nuts and bolts. They were like f-stops and shutter speeds. And, you know, you need to take picture number 25, which was this, you know, pose number 12 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't really about the heart, what was inside. And so I, I believe that for a while, the female photographer basically said, hey, uh, they took over they because and they know the code that's the thing they're talking to brides they know the code they understand how it feels and what the bride is thinking um but in today's market uh, i would say it's not quite so um obvious who is you know uh, there, there's you know the male you know counterpart to the female it's not so obvious because men these days are so much more in tune with um um you know, with um, what makes, you know, what makes uh, the importance of photography to a woman. I, mm-hmm. I just don't think they're quite as into the nuts and bolts 
in their vocabulary and such as they used to be. And so many of the men that I admire photographically, um, like Joe Busink is one of my favorite photographers, Dennis Reggie as well, both old timers, but still very relevant. And they're, um, um, they're very much in tune uh, to the sensitivity uh, of a wedding, for instance, it's just really brilliant. Well, it's something that I've had in conversation with friends of mine that are also photographers where um, all the way up to, I, I spoke to Mark Mann, who's photographed Obama and, and various celebrities, all the way to just sort of local friends that have taken up photography recently. And, and a lot of men say the same thing, which is they'll give their camera to their partner, to their wife, to their girlfriend, whoever, and they'll, their partner will instantly get something that they really, really like as a photo. And it's a frustration for a lot of men that they spend the, all this time learning something and then they hand the camera off to, to someone who's not as interested in photography or even interested at all and they'll instantly get something. And I've, I've said on constant, I think I, I'm getting a bit worried about how many parallels there are between me and you. I feel like I've maybe been <laughs> accidentally stealing from you for the last few years. But there's a huge difference between, between sort of in a, in a general sense, men and women in that like you said, men are very technically focused on, on the general, not, not all, but I think most. And uh, most of the conversations I have with male photographers, uh, they want to go to the technical side of things. Most of the conversations I had with female photographers, they want to go more to an emotional human, sort of hum, uh, human side of photography. Even if they're not photographing people, they still want to talk about it from a people's perspective because that's who their audience is. And there's obviously going to be a happy medium, but I definitely feel like if you're going to pick one, I would want personally to be headed more towards having an understanding of expression and an understanding of emotion and humanity than the technical side of things, because a technical photo without any of that expression is just boring. Whereas you can have a not technically perfect picture, but the, there's something instinctively in you that's going to react when you see an image that draws emotion, draws expression. And I, I, that's something I'm seeing more and more with YouTube and uh, especially a lot of paper sort of course type sites is that there's such a huge focus on dragging men generally kicking and screaming away from the technical side of things and getting them to focus more on, on the human, the humane side of things. Um, if I, if I could ask, uh, I mean, not to, I don't want to embarrass you too much here. And English people, it might not embarrass you, but for English people, it's always terrifying when someone pays you a compliment. First female golden eye winner from the Russian Federation of Professional Photography. Once you've won something like that, how do you stay motivated? Because if I achieve, if I managed on a day to get up, especially with the last year, get up, do the laundry, make the house look decent and walk the dog, I feel like I've achieved everything there is to achieve in life. And I completely lose motivation for 24 hours. How, how do you win something like that and then continue to be motivated and continue to push yourself? Uh, you don't think about it. Um, I have to tell you, I, I appreciate immensely, you know, some of the, um, the awards that I've gotten. Um, but I never think about them. I honestly don't even give it one thought because it's not who I am today. It's like, okay, that was yesterday. What, what are we doing next? Um, I am profoundly grateful, but seriously, I'm, I'm one of those people that I always think, are you kidding me? Me? What for? There's so many people that are way better than I am. Um, I, I think that it's important to have humility. And I mean, that's a real important quality to me 
um, because it really, um, if you if you think you already know something or you've already reached the top, then there's nowhere to go. But if you honestly in your heart go, okay, well, that was nice, but okay, what am I going to do today? Then you have a place to go to and you're always, you're always on a path to doing something more creative. And I, I, um, I, I don't feel like that I'm, that I have to be the only one at the top or the best. I just want to be enjoying the experience. And I tell you what, I really believe that as long as you continue to enjoy the experience, you're winning. That's really the bottom line to me. Um, I, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I, I, I literally, I find it embarrassing. <laughs> Quite honestly, don't get me wrong. I mean, I do appreciate it. And I'm very touched when something like that happens at the end of the day. There's always going to be somebody who's greater and better and, and better looking and whatever. So, you know. There's the old expression, there's always a bigger fish, right? So you should never consider yourself to be uh, the biggest, nor should it really matter about being the biggest. Um, so I've taught a handful of workshops in my time and generally limit the numbers to about 12 people. That, that seems to be about the total number that I can handle before um, I start to lose the, the concept of reality within trying to discuss things with that many people. You, you've spoken, um, obviously, my first interaction with you all the way over here in, in England. I was actually in a little flat on the south coast of England at the time, um, the first time I saw you. What, what's it like the first time you go to give uh, like a presentation or a class or a workshop or something in front of what is a, a, an enormous number of people? Is that something that you were nervous about, excited about? You know, uh, that's a good question. I would say the first time I ever taught, um, I did a big class. It was like 500 people. Um, but you know, what I've always done is before I ever start a program and I don't even know what made me decide to do this. I just said, I'm going to meet as many people in this room as I can, because I figure that if you meet people that, um, if you meet more people than they're more friends, then you're not so hung up on, Oh my goodness, there's a thousand people. To be honest with you, I generally get more nervous with a small class than I do with a big number. Um, A thousand people don't, don't make me nervous at all, but give me a class of 12 students. And I am, I'm much more um, wound up. I am much more wound up. I remember the first time I, I, I ever really had a bad workshop and it's, it was like, I think creative people tend to do, they tend to sort of weed through the, the haystack to find the needle. And I found one experience on a day that generally went really well, but there was, there was one guy on a workshop who immediately, he'd obviously come in with a, with an idea that he, he was going to challenge everything and, and to, to like, to a point of just absurdity, I won't go into it because it's not the most interesting story unless I guess you've had a few to drink and then I could probably make something funny out of it. But um, essentially he, it got down to the point where he was explaining to me that I should take all my photos with a 24 mil and then I can just crop them in to whatever framing I want. And then I never have to change a lens. That's generally the gist of what you're saying, which makes absolutely no sense. I can't really even understand the point he was trying to get at. It got to the point of just almost aggression uh, towards the end. Have you ever had any bad experiences on, on these things where you've had like a, like a guy come in who's basically paying for the, for the right to tell you that he disagrees with you or, someone that wants to be just too much of a, 
I mean, in England, we just call them a dickhead, but I don't know what you would call them out in your, out in your lovely part of the world, but just someone that wants to come in and just and throw a spanner in the works for no reason. Well, yes, I have. In fact, I think I had that same student in my class. I'm sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I one of the things I've learned is that, you know, if somebody has their own agenda, I'm not going to change their mind. So I usually just take them by the hand. I grab their hand, pat them on the hand and go, you know what, honey, you get to be the student today and I get to be the teacher. And, um, um, and we're going to get along great as long as that's the case. Otherwise then, you know, you may, this may not be the best class for you to take. Um, I uh, have not had that happen very often, but the, the real, I can put up with a lot just as long as they're not disruptive. And I mean, I ha- I'm very grateful that in all of my years of teaching that I can remember maybe one time or two times where I had somebody who actually wanted to be the teacher of the class. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, you know, I just, uh, you know, I find that for me, it's just easier just to just blow over it and just say, that's a, that's a really great idea. You keep doing that. Let them just do what they're doing and then just say, you know what, that's it. That's the way it goes. That's exactly it. The, f- the first time it happened to me, I thought that it was a good opportunity for me to to teach someone and get someone over on my side. And I realized afterwards that the best course of action was to just not give that fire the fuel it needed and to let it just kind of peter out on its own. There are occasions when someone just really wants attention. It's not about, you know, lenses or or equipment. It just is somebody wants, they, they, ha- they need to be the center of the room. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's, I now have the, the, the mantra in life that I get told by a lot of people that they disagree with me. If someone wants to pay me for the privilege, then they're more than welcome to at this point. <laughs> yeah. Something that I do think is a really undervalued skill in photography. And I think 80% of what makes you a good photographer happens away from the camera or is, is not involving the technical aspect of the camera um, is just the ability to kind of analyze and critique work and to, to when you like something to figure out why you like it and to really break down what it is you like about it and when you don't like something to be able to break down why you don't like it when something hasn't worked for you to be able to kind of isolate yourself emotionally from the the moment that you took the photo and understand what it is that didn't work and then be able to improve on the next one any tips for for mortals like myself on on better ways to kind of critique work and and go about analyzing work um, yeah, I can tell you exactly what I would do. Um, let somebody else look at it. Get another pair of eyes because I'll tell you what, I am the worst judge of my own work. The pictures that I think are like the best I've ever taken, just so awesome. Every single time, <laughs> if I show them to somebody else, I'll go, okay, that's all right looking. And it's like, because, you know, we get to be a little precious about our own work, especially if we know the backstory, mm-hmm. you know, like we know who that subject was and we understand what was going on at that moment. Um, you know, like maybe it's the bride walking down the aisle with her dad. And it's like, we know that he was in the hospital the week before or whatever, you know, then we, because we have that backstory information, images become more precious to us. Whereas somebody with just an antiseptic pair of eyes who doesn't know the backstory, all they have is what's in front of them. And that's a great way to shift, to, to sift through your images 
for the crap, you know, the, for the pictures that like, for instance, if you're going to enter competition and sift through the ones and go, okay, this is probably not going to be your winner. This is going to be a loser. This isn't going to be your best. And I have a couple of photographers that to, to this day that we share images with one another um, when we're going to enter competition and say, okay, what do you think of this group of pictures? Which ones, is, is there anything in here that you think might you know, that, that, that might be worth, you know, um, pursuing further, especially when it comes to competition. And is it the case there that you're finding a non-photographer to do that so that they're not trying to break it down from a technical point? Um, actually that's using a non-professional is a great idea. Um, because they, especially maybe not for competition, but for work that you're going to show on your website or for images that you're going to show at a bridal fair, things like that, I would absolutely have a non-professional because all they know is impact. That's all they understand. They don't know about lighting and about composition, or but they know if something speaks to them. And that's who you're trying to appeal to if you're doing a bridal fair or on your website, if you're trying to um, if you have images that you're, you're trying to, um, you know, get some, um, um, showcasing going on, then I would absolutely want somebody who wasn't a professional. Now, something that's kind of crippled me for the last few years. Um, and it's, it's come over from when I was in music and before music, I was actually a chef and it, it was actually a similar thing there, although it's a very different, different game entirely. Um, is I'm kind of obsessed I'm a bit of, a bit obsessed with things lining up and being on brand and and having consistency with everything that you do. So um, I, it's to a point where I've, I'm having to train myself away from it so that I'm avoiding stagnating for the sake of consistency. Where where you're just doing the same thing over and over and you're scratching that itch of making sure that everything's consistent, but there's no personal growth, there's no artistic growth. How do you find that balance? And and I'm, I'm probably asking more for me than than for the podcast is just finding the balance between re- retaining a style and still growing and improving as a, as an artist. Uh, I would say, give yourself personal projects. When you give yourself a personal project to me, that's for playtime. My playtime is for my personal growth. Um, I'm going to do the kind of consistent work that's going to appeal to a client. And then I'm going to create personal projects that are for me that I don't care. I'm not doing it for somebody else. I'm just doing it because I want to enjoy the experience. And then because I'm working out the kinks in these personal projects, I'm working out the, the, I don't even know how to describe it. I'm kind of working out the concept. Then that eventually weaves its way into my portfolio and into my existing work so that it becomes, I I grow as an artist, as a photographer, but it starts with the personal project where I have no pressure. It's just me and a camera and a play date. And I was saying, okay, here's a concept, a word maybe uh, that I want to explore. Well, how do I do that? Um, One of the greatest experiences I ever had that really helped me to grow as a photographer. And it was an eye-opening experience was, um, um, I got to go to Iceland with Microsoft many years ago. And I was like, why in the world have they invited me to go to Iceland? I'm an, I was an icon of imaging for them. And I literally griped the whole time that I was going to getting ready to go. Cause I was like, what am I doing there? I'm a wedding photographer. It's not, that doesn't appeal to me. And it was one of the greatest experiences of my entire life because 
it forced me to put aside what I do for a living and practice my my art as a photographer. And so I started using concepts as a wedding photographer to photograph landscape or to photograph um, um, uh, animals or whatever. And it was very, very eye-opening to me. It was so, it lifted a burden off my shoulders that I was going to be just someone who did wedding photography or did this particular type of photography. And I came back with still some of my favorite images I've ever taken because I had the chance to just play and practice some techniques without having to worry about who was going to see them or I didn't have an agenda. I guess that's really the point. I didn't have an agenda with them uh, or an agenda that anybody else cared about besides myself. Well, something that I've been saying for the last few years and I'll continue to say, and it probably needs explanation every time I say it, but that there is no such thing as a wedding photographer. A wedding, yeah. a wedding photographer is, is the best of a lot of worlds. It's, it's landscape photography. It's almost product photography at times. It's portrait. It's photojournalism. It's fashion photography. It's, 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 there's no such thing as a wedding photographer because I think that really sells short the profession. And that's the problem. I think in the, in maybe it's been forever. Maybe I'm just being daft, but. It feels like wedding photography always gets kind of dismissed out of hand by yes. a lot of photographers because either they're terrified of it and they feel like limiting it verbally makes it less terrifying to them, or it's something that they just don't know enough about to appreciate. But right. anytime I have a wedding photographer on the podcast, and it's rarer than I'd like it to be, um, but especially, and I'm going to do it to you again here, but especially when I've got a top 10 wedding photographer in the world, according to... Uh, American Photo Magazine. Um, I, I'd like the opportunity if I could just get you to just tell people why they're wrong to dismiss wedding photography as as the art that it is. Well, I would say they're wrong because, you know, with any other photography style, like I'm thinking of like uh, Ansel Adams pictures, um, beautiful, incredible photography. But he had all day, all night to create an image. Whereas a wedding photographer has a day to create, you know, a thousand images or more or, you know, whatever, and they all have to be good. And he has to do them, you know, under unusual and incredibly difficult constraints. Um, the emotions of people like the dynamics of families where, you know, the mother um, of the bride hates the groom or, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the craziness that goes on at a wedding. Um, I love chaos. I love it. And that's why I was good at as wedding photographer because I really embraced the chaos. And with other forms of photography, um, unless you're uh, a sports photographer, they don't have a lot of that chaos. And, you know, I think that the real movers and shakers, the people who are really, who can do a lot are those who can think on their feet and who have to go to plan B, C, D, E, F, G, just like that. And they don't, they don't have all day to make a picture. Um, I, I have to say that I personally am not as inspired in, in photography that is where the photographers are using models to, you know, to take pictures of the, they have a couple that they're photographing yep. um, for wedding pictures, but they're not a real couple. And that this is, you know, just a fake 
wedding or fake, you know, just models. I don't really care for that. Um, being in competing with photographers who are in the trenches working a wedding because it's not fair. I mean, in one case, they've had all day long and they've got this perfect little couple who are, are, you know, devoid of any emotion. And then on the other side with a a, a real wedding, you know, that that bride, her dad may have gotten sick the day before or her and her bridesmaids got into an argument or whatever the case is. And you're having to deal with all of these family dynamics. And still, there's no excuse for you not doing your craft and getting it right. So I'd say, you know, wedding photographers are my heroes in my book. Well, you know, it's funny. I had someone compare, if you were to compare wedding photography to anything else, they said it's very similar to war photography. But the difference between wedding photography and war photography is that war photography is trying to get people to care about something that they don't know is going on. And then being a wedding photographer is capturing how much people care about what they know is going on. So it's, it's very good. It's, it's a very interesting kind of, it says a lot about wedding photography that that was the comparison that a non-wedding photographer could draw because you can't really compare it to anything else. Like you said, because of the chaos, a massive thank you for taking the time to do this. I have one last question, if that's okay. Uh huh. And I want you to be, you can be as mean as you like. Don't worry about it. You go for it. You treat yourself. <laughs> Obviously, photography's gone through a lot of changes, and I feel like maybe the last two years, it's really accelerating. It feels like we go through trends every couple of weeks, and we're on to the next thing. Maybe that's the technology. Maybe that's social media. I don't know. And maybe that's people's attention spans at this point. Um, But what do you think the most common mistakes are in photography that you've seen? Hmm. Um, I would probably say people that misuse Photoshop and any kind of editing software. To me, that is there. I'd say learn the difference between an F-stop and a bus stop. You know, learn your craft (laughs) because if you learn how to compose properly and you learn the art of communication and you learn how to use lighting in 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 a way that creates you know, uh, depth for your imagery or even just in the natural environment, then no matter what you're using, you can create beautiful images. And, you know, I got to tell you, I'm so sick and tired of seeing plastic skin and perfection, um, too much perfection. And I think that that has, that has done a great disservice to humanity in the fact that, you know, and, and you look at the media, that's, that's been the big thing is that, you know, they've, they retouch everything so much that, you know, people, there, there's, there's this enormous pressure on the young people today, the kids to be perfect looking, that everything has to be perfect. And that if you're not perfect, if you have a defect or, you know, you have some sort of disability that that makes you somehow subhuman. So, um, you know, I would say work on your craft so that you can capture emotion and then everything else pretty much falls into place. Like I said, it's, I, I think I've just about held it together. I've been extremely nervous for this whole interview. This is actually the 161st interview for the podcast, but this one has, has had me rattled because like I say, I feel like I'm talking to someone that I'm, I have no right to be interviewing. Before, before we go, the, the most important part of the podcast is that I'm pushing as many people to things that I like as possible so that I can become my own algorithm essentially. So where can everyone go to find your work, your, your Instagram, your website, and so on? Um, they can find me on Instagram at 
Bambi Cantrell, B-A-M-B-I Cantrell, C-A-N-T-R-E-L-L. And they can find me on my website at cantrellportrait.com, C-A-N-T-R-E-L-L portrait, P-O-R-T-R-A-I-T. Com. And I have to spell it out because there's somebody who, who stole my website and, and they just added an S on portrait for portraits and their works. Um, you know, just it's different. So uh, not me. <laughs> well, I mean, it's uh, it's something that I made the mistake of years ago. So when I started my business, I have an extremely foreign sounding last name. And in the UK, it was just if people have to try and pronounce something, out of just sheer shame, they won't do it. So I limited my name to be much easier for people to understand. And now everyone calls me Carl instead of Chris. So it kind of backfired on me quite massively. But yeah, again, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. By the way, I do like your logo. It's quite pretty. Oh, thank you. I, I, tend, to, I tend to prefer pretty to... I, I keep wanting to make myself want something that's more like magazine-y and... <laughs> I tend to go more towards pretty. It covers up what they actually look like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was nice meeting you and I wish you the best. 